Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. What is the situation in Ukrainian journalism? Have Ukrainian journalists secured their independence from government control? How has it changed in the past 20 years since the moment when prominent journalist Georgi Gongadze was killed, which sparked the protests against then-president Leonid Kuchma and his semi-authoritarian regime? So my guest today is Natalia Humenyuk, prominent Ukrainian journalist and co-founder of Public Interest Journalism Lab. And recently Natalia produced a movie about Gongadze, the murder of Ukrainian journalist, Ukrainian-Georgian journalist uh, Georgi Gongadze. 20 years have passed since that murder and we still don't have the answer to all the questions. Can you come back to this story, Natalia? Can you make a flashback? This movie is also available with English subtitles. But let me ask, what was the epoch there at that time and and what was the case? 20 years after, it's probably interesting to see how far we went since that time and how much uh, what has happened 20 years ago uh, has is still defining the justice system in Ukraine. So the case of Georgi Gangadze, the founder of Ukrainska Pravda, for a while one of the most prominent, if not the most important, uh, online uh, publication in Ukraine, was huge, and particularly because the, it's not just the journalist had been, a prominent journalist had been kidnapped, he had been beheaded. But uh, when that happened, there were also leaks, not even leaks, there were recordings uh, done by the president's bodyguard in the cabinet of, at that time, President Kuchma, where President Kuchma, speaking with the uh, very important people, the most important people in the country, in uh, a very, let's say, vulgar way, uh, was discussing Gongadze and other journalists, including the phrase like, let some Chechens kidnap him. So, allegedly, uh, there there is a big question, what was the role of the president of kidnapping a journalist And in the end, he was beheaded. Later, it was found out that he was killed and beheaded by active general, but one of the super important uh, people in the Ministry of Interior. In fact, it's one of the, if not the only case, when the Ministry of Interior general killed a journalist with his hands. So, you know, now it sounds horrendous. And the Warsaw investigations, it taken... 16 years till Georgi Gangadze was buried. For eight years, the we were searching his head and it taking years to uh, find the hitman. And in fact, in Ukrainian um, justice system, the person who killed him, Pukach, uh, he is now in prison. He is in prison uh, for quite a while. The process, he was uh, found in 2008, I, I guess, 2009. Uh, and uh, out of... Uh, so... so There is a partial investigation, but what we always see and what this case uh, tells us that, yeah, there there could be progress and the hitman could be found, but there is never the case when we know who ordered that and also what is the role of the top figures of uh, uh, the Ukrainian uh, you know, government. Your film is touching up all this up on these questions. Let me say to our listeners that this is a movie by Suspilne, public broadcaster, and it is done by Natalia Homenyuk, also Anna Tsehima and Maxim Kamenev. Am I right? 
Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And uh, really, I, I would I would really advise you to watch this film on YouTube, 20 years after the murder of Georgi Gongadze. But let's recall this epoch. It was early 2000, right? Kuchma was re-elected as, as president. Uh, with you know very dubious election, we remember he he was artificially juxtaposed to a communist leader, Mr. Simonenko, and everything seemed to be kind of a peace. His rule will last for some time. Due to this affair, he was very much marginalized. He was a person non grata in the West, and Ukraine was really fearing of coming back to Russia's zone of influence. What happened? What was this epoch? What happened there? And how it led, for example, to the Orange Revolution of 2004-2005? Absolutely. So that was really the peak of the Ukrainian authoritarianism. I mean, apart from this short period of Yanukovych. But uh, in that time, the state controlled everything. There are discussions whether Kuchma at that time was Westerner. There is no doubt that after the cassette scandal, that's how it was, tape scandal, which was very big, uh, in 2000, 2001, there were protests against Kuchma that, of course, somehow Ukraine moved back closer to the Russian sphere of interest. There is no doubt that Russia uh, used that case to see that Kuchma is ostracized, uh, he's marginalized. It benefited from this image of a Kuchma as a horrible dictator. Right now, it is benefiting from Lukashenko's image as a horrible dictator. The, right? the, there is no doubt about that. There is no doubt that Russia benefited, that Russia used you know, that situation the only point it doesn't make Kuchma innocent you know it doesn't make uh, what he the whole system he was creating you know legit because it was the founding time of the Ukrainian oligarchism the Ministry of the Interior which was back then was uh, you know more or less has been created then this kind of it was a time when Ukrainian state more or less fought the bandits the gangs but that was a time when the law enforcement had this monopoly of power. And even like remembering that the officers could kill somebody, they didn't order Titushki or somebody else. They did them with their bare hands. So, you know, it also tells a lot. So it was a time when the president figure was um, sacralized. He was an absolute leader and Gangadze was his uh, fierce critique. And what we also know from the, you know, archives that, you know, he was uh, criticizing Kuchma right in the live broadcast. But we also shouldn't, now for us, especially for younger reporters and for everybody who is younger, it's hard to imagine there was such a monopoly for uh, information because there was just state, not, not just state television, it was this control, government control television. It was, there was no uh, independent TV, but what what strikes me it's still we had some origins of freedom of speech at the time because well I remember and, and you show this this picture when Gongadze is, is asking very harsh questions to Kuchma and Kuchma is, feels very uncomfortable so we had this already freedom of speech at the time but let me ask if you look back at that epoch there was Ukrainska Pravda the uh, web newspaper is alive today, it's very powerful, one of the most influential websites in Ukraine, Ukrainska Pravda. At that time, it was the beginnings, it was created by Georgi Gongaza. And I think it was kind of a very, really game changer because we had very good 
newspapers in Ukraine. We had Zerkola Tizhnya, etc., etc. But I think it was kind of a, the style of Ukrainska Pravda was very, very critical to the government and on the brink between criticism and maybe activism even. Do you think that it was kind of a, the beginning of a, a new Ukrainian journalism? We probably should explain that you know the paper was in the end created we have to give credit uh, by also Olena Pretula, who was an editor-in-chief at that time. Ukrainska Pravda existed for a couple of months before Gungadze's death. It was like a couple of months. So in the end, it become what it become, you know, after, more or less based on his legacy, but also by, let's say, other people. And it was scary to work at Ukrainska Pravda back then. It now looks like, oh, that's cool to work in the paper where, you know, the founder is killed. But in the end, he, there were there were risks. There were risks. And uh, that was the generation of journalists also at the time who become very important. For instance, Serhii Leshenko, who uh, was investigative reporter during the Orange Revolution. Uh, later, there was Mustafa Nayem, who has become a prominent reporter during the Yanukovych time. They all, you know, coming from Ukrainska Pravda because, yes, it was more open, it was more critical, and it also, not in the, let's say, tabloid style, but it managed to look at the risk to write about, like, important figures as about humans with all their vulnerabilities, to look at what do people earn, uh, how come they are so, the Ukrainian politicians are so rich. So the roots of the investigative journalism we have today in Ukraine are also coming from Ukrainska Pravda. And, of course, but it was done by the professional journalists in the end. So it wasn't just like this critique or like agitation paper, despite of everything. Of course, there was a lot of interest during the... How to say it? I asked this question to the reporters who worked but then. It wasn't easy to work within the first year at Ukrainska Pravda. People were scared to work there. However, of course, they have this driving force to uncover this murder, to to report, to, you know, to be both at some time freedom fighters and uh, I mean, fighters for press freedom, but as well create Ukrainian online journalism and journalism as it is today. Do you think that the murder, this tragedy, the murder of uh, Gongadze and events afterwards created the ground for the Orange Revolution? Uh, because we remember those actions, Ukraine without Kuchma, Ukraine bez Kuchma, which was basically uh, defeated by the government, but then in two years we had this Maidan. Yes, and when we asked this question, Miroslava Gongadze, uh, Georgi's wife, who has to move to the United States back then, she also insists that, yes, without this case, the Orange Revolution maybe won't be that uh, that big. It was in after the scandal, after the murder of Gongadze, there was, as you mentioned, the protest in 2001, Ukraine, uh, Ukraine without Kuchma, And later, the demands to investigate that case, they were uh, in uh, the among the demands of the Orange Revolution. So, as we know today, the Orange Revolution played its role as a found foundation for the Euromaidan. So, in the end, all those things are, are dependent. We also had cases of uh, journalist murders afterwards, unfortunately, and one of the most tragic one, of the most remarkable one, was the murder of uh, Pavel Sheremet in 2016, which is also, who was also linked to Ukrainska Pravda. So, in some way, 
Do you think that these two tragedies are, are related in some symbolic way? We I know it's 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 hard to explain to the you know foreign audience to those who don't know, but to those journalists who are a bit close or know people at Ukrainska Pravda, you really the first thing when we heard five years ago it was already five years ago when Pavel Sharamet had been murdered, we thought like again it can't happen again. Also to uh, such people, for instance, like Olena Pratula, who was the founding editor of Ukrainska Pravda, who was a good friend of Georgi Gangadze. And in the end, 16, and, and, and we knew that for that editorial team, that loss was something they couldn't heal themselves for the first decade, you know, for very long time. And in particular, if to speak to Olena, Pavel Sheremet was the, the journalist. He was also a partner, a civil uh, husband of Olena Pritula. And when you hear that he was killed back then. You just couldn't imagine that in the, in the destiny of a person that things happen, that you can lose like no two close persons. So that's a very, very um, difficult story and it was a huge blow. We also understood for the first year when I was talking to editors, even the people who didn't know Gangadze, yeah. Uh, but for them it was still one thing. I have no any evidence to speak that those cases connect Whether there was the um, idea of those who ordered those killing or who who is uh, behind the killing of Pavel Sheremet to remind about this case, they reminded, they succeeded to remind us and to everybody who has connection to Ukrainska Pravda, that's happening again. You know, it could be totally different executors, uh, those people who ordered, but they, in any case, they succeeded for, for some of the Ukrainian journalists who also remembered to Southern that it happened again. When you look back on, to, on those years of Gungadze murder and you look at Ukrainian journalism, how, how it has changed in these 20 years? So when we've done the movie and later when we have this discussion, the idea was, God, this story is so tragic, it's so sad, it's so heavy, you know, we can't anymore complain. But this is also the story of resilience, uh, of incredible resilience. Gungadze body was found thanks to the journalist. He was not, he was remembered because of the journalist, because of their self-organization. In the end, despite, you know, one can imagine if the president might be behind the case, how much uh, strength the state, especially authoritarian state, or at least not democratic state, how much such state can do uh, to uh, shut down everybody. But they didn't manage In the end, in the end, the whole world knows about the case. At least at that time, they knew. Of course, there was a lot of politics involved later, but the investigation had taken place. The and it lasted for many years. So it is the case of resilience. And today, really, I'm happy to say that I can't imagine that such things happen. You know, like in that way as it was, that the president speaks about the journalist to be murdered even if he doesn't give a direct order, but he speaks that way, or that the, you know, uh, it's done by the law enforcement. But I think at that time, when you listen to those tapes, so-called Melnichenko tapes, and you listen to this Kuchma voice, you understand that for him, the journalism, the independent journalism was a shock. He just couldn't imagine that some journalist, you know, a Georgian, Ukrainian journalist would criticize him so much. Today, it is kind of a typical reality. So, and what is 
not that good is that politicians get used to it, that get used to to, to this criticism and don't really care. Yeah, and the, what we say that the price of life is it like more um, higher because you know now we have at that time the country has been shocked by the fact that the president's office has been bugged now. Nobody would, you know, like there are scandals of that kind. This tape is leaked. That call had been bugged. And, you know, after five days, it's not any longer a scandal. Uh, so so it's true. Politi- so in a time of YouTube, you can, you know, launch any interrupted uh, call. Uh, and, and we see it almost every week in Ukraine. By the way, it's also the story that... At that time, politicians on the top level couldn't understand what's internet uh, because Kuchma was desperately searching who is this internet? Who are these people who can order the articles in the internet? It should be, you know, like it's it's somewhere. Now we really understood the power of it with all the, you know, problems of what we have. So that was really indeed this kind of beginning of the online journalism when the politician couldn't grasp that there is some medium they cannot control. They could control television, they could control the papers, radio, and something appeared. So, uh, therefore, it, it, it's really a bit of the history of the global journalism in this regard. You you made this movie on Suspilne, and you are cooperating with Suspilne, and I'm, I'm following the Suspilne public broadcaster from a distance, and it is, I, I should say that this is remarkable how in the past year, I think, things maybe were prepared so much in, in previous years, but suddenly you see the absolutely new public broadcaster who is doing lots of good things, who is becoming popular. And compared to the trends of some other countries, including our neighbors, both Eastern and Western, Ukrainian public broadcaster looks very good. So do you think this is one of the also good achievements from the So for us, we've done that as a production for Suspilne uh, with the help of the international donors. So we actually broadcasted that with Suspilne. But our appeal was uh, to Suspilne saying that, like, I want myself that this movie is screened by Suspilne, in particular because if there was a TV channel 20 years ago who silenced that story, that would be really the sign that this channel would broadcast the story 20 years after. So for me, it was kind of symbolic to be there. Uh, I do think that it's critically important to work uh, with, uh, uh, you know, the development of the Ukrainian public broadcaster. I don't see any other way to break the oligarchic system. If you explain me one reason why Suspilna should be there, I do not see any efficient way to get out of the monopoly of oligarchic channel unless there is at least one strong player which is not owned by somebody. In Ukraine, I really do not believe in the television as a business. It has stopped to be profitable elsewhere. If we don't speak about sport or something, it's heavily polarized elsewhere. So I really believe that the public broadcasters, it is the only model to have, you know, law, big company, which is talking to, you know, millions of people. So it's critical and it's very, very important that it's developing. And by the way, it's interesting when we discuss about legacy of, not really legacy of Gungadze, of that case. And I would explain, I'm mentioning, not really Suspilna in this, in this case. That was our let's say, jab, if we can do that, uh, if we can use this term, or I try to f- rephrase it differently. You know, after Gengadze, it's very difficult for Ukrainian journalist who is covering politics to trust the government. Somehow, after that case, especially if the cases are unsolved, it's true that independent journalists turn to be a bit in their position. 
to every government. And it's our task today to understand how we work in a different system that you do not see the government as your, you know, not even like opponent, but like... Even enemy, enemy. obviously. You, you know, like it could be an opponent, but it there is a role model of the government whose only aim is to squeeze. So for us, and especially for a bigger media, it's very hard to build, let's say, I even can't use this term, constructive relation. What is a constructive relation of the press and government? But in a way, the way that it's not that we should find the way, how we communicate, it's a lot depends on the maturity of the government itself. And on maturity on journalists. And the maturity of the journalists. But the point that when we start to discuss about that, because I grew up in the generation when you're opposed, if you're independent, you're you are opposed. Of course, the only thing you can That's say about model. government yeah. is a bad thing. Yeah. And if, you know, you don't have the way, how to explain something if it's, of course, the war made the, the uh, made us a bit balancing, understanding that there are some security issues then, you know, when there is an enemy at your border, it's not always that the government is your primary threat, there is a bigger threat. But it's also, the murder of Gangadze also explained that. Why? Why People feel still threatened, feel that there is this thing. And unless it's all in the end sorted out, we probably would for a while would surge this. So coming back to Suspilna, I also think that now we also should understand, you know, what are these relations of the public broadcaster? Because public, you know, broadcaster can't ignore the government, but uh, it also expected to be balanced. And also the government should have this maturity not to uh, enforce something, to keep it independent. So, and not to ignore the, the public broadcast because now we have the, you know, situation when many politicians do not come to Suspilne, you know, they just do not come. They come to other oligarchic channels, not just because they're pleasing them, but they, we, we always have this, for a while we have this, policy and practice by the government of not attacking any longer, but ignoring important voices, silencing important voices. And that's their way to, let's say, kind of marginalize the, the independent media. But I, I totally agree with you on this, you know, uh, idea that I would say this is idea of zero-sum game, sorry for this banal term, but from both sides, from the government and from the journalists. So the government tended for a very long time to consider journalists as the enemies, and journalists were very mutually resp- responding to that, right? But let me just reflect, let us reflect upon uh, the way how journalism is developing now in Ukraine, because I strongly believe that Ukraine does have a very strong journalism, does have a very strong freedom of speech, again, compared to many our neighbors. But uh, we also should talk about difficult things and about problems, right? One thing that that makes me kind of a very uncomfortable is that even good journalists, they tend to leave the profession. So you mentioned, for example, Mustafa Nayem, Mustafa Leshenko. They're not journalists anymore. They're taking positions in the supervisory boards of, you know, big companies. And I have big questions whether they're competent enough to, to serve there. We, we know journalists who go to politics and who, from uh, being good journalists, do not become good politicians. We know journalists who go to, I don't know, to, to become members of parliament, become spokespersons of certain politicians, etc. Is it not popular to stay in the journalistic profession? 
if you think about a career or something I else. thought about that, but I think if you look to the politicians of the 20th century, each of the major leaders, so to say, from Stalin to everybody, was at some point the editor of a paper. And, uh, you know, a lot of current politicians who are prominent politicians were journalists in, you know, Yuri Lutsenko was a journalist, Oleh Lashko was a journalist, and by the way, Mustafa Jemilev was an editor of a paper. I think that, that the media at some point was the, the place where there was at least some freedom. You know, we have we didn't have this tradition of the civil servants or, you know, in some countries you have a different prototype of the people who are becoming politicians. In Ukraine, it was always journalists. If you really look at early, you know, 90s, because we're doing other projects, we also understand that those people were at their time journalists. Yet we have... Another two things. The first is that the journalism is Ukraine still not bringing a lot of money unless you are a presenter and the oligarchic channel. You know, like you can, kind of this political beast who are bought. But in generally, as an editor of a paper or somebody, you you are not super successful. You know, there are exam- there are exemptions, but in generally, uh, it's not the end of your career. Also, so that is one of the reason. And sometimes people are disappointed that maybe they can't reach enough. The journalism doesn't have impact. So maybe if you, they go to the politics, even to become a press secretary, that's for me a mystery. Uh, but you will have a, a press secretary of some politician, but you'll have more impact. Uh, I still strongly believe that there is a lot of impact by journalism. But I think the, the issue of today, what is my, let's say, not concern, but what I, where I'm worried most, and you know, Volodya, we're working at our project at the Public Interest Broad, Public Journalism Interest Lab. We're working a lot on how to overcome polarization. And what I feel that even the independent media, they becoming partisan. Uh, that's true. And It's not really the the crime. It's okay. There are It's ideological also the, papers. The history of, of journalism. That's a history. The, you know, there were paper, the party papers. They existing, uh, but the point that we are losing, let's say, a bigger platforms where people of different views can somehow meet. Because I can explain today who is the reader of Ukrainska Pravda, who is the reader of Strana UA or some other. But those people do not have Intersect. a place yeah they to discuss so in the end there is always risk that they would be as we have preaching to acquire and they would be in their bubbles so therefore for instance i'm so insisting that public broadcaster has at least potential for being this platform and sometimes maybe need to have to make an effort because what was automatic some years ago that you know you have a show you invite different people now People do not need to come to a neutral platform. They, It's better to come for the a platform they like, a presenter they like. So, um, therefore, I think in the end, if we do not have the stronger, bigger platforms, uh, which are at least like more neutral, that would be very hard to have a common civilized civilized discussion in But in we, we also don't have uh, have to have illusions, I think. We can build a very powerful platform, neutral platform, but it will not attract majority of citizens. It will still attract a minority. And that, that can be a problem. But I, I generally, of course, I agree with you. 
because polarization is a word that happens everywhere. And Ukraine, by the way, is not that bad in this sense, because if we compare to many other countries, one thing I wanted to ask, um, compared to, again, Gonganza case, at his time, to be a free journalist was a kind of a heroic act. Now it is no longer a heroic act, it is a normality, but it seems to me that journalists uh, quite often, maybe it's also a question of maturity, they consider their freedom as the utmost kind of a value, not thinking about their impact and their responsibility, how you make your freedom responsible. Do you agree with this uh, diagnosis? I won't see it exactly that way. I do feel that we are more hostages of our audience who we want to support us. So you, the journalists are more afraid to lose their supporters and their loyal audience. And it makes people kind of be not even radical, but somehow very clear in your views to fit the picture of your loyal audience. So, and sometimes this loyal audience want you to be an opposition leader, a super independent, a person who always criticizes these people but don't criticize those people. So it's rather this phenomenon for me. It's not the just independence for myself. Today I want to say this, today I want to say that. It's rather playing to those, you know, it's, it's a bit like Facebook. You want to get likes. You don't want to get hate. And you, at some point, you very much know what you need to write at that moment. So to get a lot of claps. And it looks cool if you have these uh, hundred shares and thousands of shares. But in the end, those thousands shares, it's not millions of citizens. But you feel important, you feel good. So I do think it's a bit, it's not just about ego, it's about how also the market works, because there is this kind of niche idea of the niche, which is good. It's very easy to, you know, the more focused you are, it's better for your business. So we have this, I do think that's a bit of the problem for the journalism. It's not so just in purely independence. Yeah. In order to be successful, you have to define your niche. Yeah thematic or ideological and of course it narrows down your kind of capacity to look around right and this can be a problem and also yeah like many many people journalists including are looking for approval rather than for truth right and this is kind of also a problem what about bloggers we see also the kind of a, a great time for ukrainian bloggers youtube bloggers everywhere from every possible ideological spectrum do you think blogging video blogging is good for journalists or is bad for journalists i like that topic but because for many years i remember when the bloggy blogs appears people would said like okay the editors shouldn't be needed anytime soon i think there is uh, people would they need for some kind of gatekeepers you have just too much of uh, you know content but we should consider how you uh, really need to ad- journalists rather need to adjust their tone because why bloggers are popular there are more human they are they there is less distance they are more similar to the audience itself and that's works so it's not really about competition it's how do you use these tricks and if you really uh, look at the Ukraine and let's say market or media environment, a lot of out of the popular bloggers are in fact journalists who are just opinion journalists. That is a different phenomenon. I think we won't say that, you know, that the YouTube is bad. 
it's just there. The competition is in the end good because you need to compete with the relevance. It's very hard. And you will never win, for instance. Uh, you know, I would never have any more subscribers than a beauty blogger, wherever I do. I mean, I can make an interview with you know, President Obama or Donald Trump, and I would never get th- th- that much followers. But in the end, it still even me makes me you know, be more conscious about, I need to make an additional effort. Sometimes, you know, I get disappointed that, you know, you are doing an important story and it is not viral, but it's super important. It can make you very much disappointed. But in the end, you're starting to work harder You and it serves uh, the audience better. How to make at least some of those islands where audience know that this is a trusted source, this is something which I can trust, which is something where I can get something useful. Um, I think the big fight with us, let's say this competition, if we can again come back to this com- concept, is who is more useful? Can we be useful for the public? How we can prove that we are also useful? And anytime when there is some national crisis, COVID starts, some, you know, like even there is some risk of uh, aggression or something, we understand at those moments that people want to know, you know, the real information, verified information. At that moment, we just understand the truth is a key for our security and for our lives. And, you know, maybe my last question, when you look into the future of Ukrainian journalism, what gives you hope and what gives you kind of concern? I think I raised my concern with polarization and having these uh, echo chambers, in particular that independent media... I'm speaking about the challenge because there are a lot of good things. Of course, oligarchic system is still there, but for me the idea that we can't have independent media who are partisan. They should be there, but there should be some others apart from the more partisan voices. But uh, the hope is... You know, anytime we had the discussion, whether are, for instance, international donors or anybody discussing how impactful are the independent media, should we really cooperate with, you know, do projects and show them at the oligarchic channels? I should say that, again, speaking about, like, are the independent media important? Can we compete with, I don't know, OnePlus One or Renat Ahmedov TV channel? In the end, within the last seven years, I can always say that these are independent journalists from independent media who set the agenda, first of all. They are It's exactly those independent media who are doing investigation. Different political forces later may misuse those uh, investigations for their interest, but these are them. If you ask into the press conference of the president also, these are independent media who ask the questions, who set the agenda. And we can amplify our voices. We have today investigative units. We have a lot of independent media doing the and some kind of the satire shows. There are papers better on business. There are papers, there are media doing something on Crimea. There are something who covering, you know, even lifestyle. So in the end, we do When we were doing, I'm one of the co-founders with many, but technically, technically I'm one of the co-founders of the Stop Censorship Movement of 2010. It's interesting, it has been created uh, close to the uh, day of the journalist in summer 2010, when Yanukovych came to power. And I remember how few of us were there, and apart that there were few of us, you know, there were maybe a lot of journalists, 
most of the people were working at the media belonging to somebody. There were maybe some a few people from Ukrainska Pravda, somebody from Radio Liberty, and a couple of the people who were at something independent. Now, there are dozens of us, editors, journalists. So if we gather together as independent journalists, we have this ecosystem. We And together, we really matter. <laughs> And together, we really set the agenda. Um, so this is the great time. So we shouldn't always complain. We probably need to look at that as an ecosystem, not as, oh, whether this independent paper is bigger than one plus one. But probably we really all together are definitely more important than one oligarchic channel. Thank you, Natalia. Thank you so much for this uh, conversation. We had Natalia Huminyuk, a prominent Ukrainian journalist, a previously a founder, co-founder of Hromatske and editor-in-chief. No, you were not editor-in-chief. I, you the, were, I was the head of organization. You are the head of the organization, but currently co-founder of Public Public Journalism Interest Lab, a, a media production and NGO, and also a person who is dealing a lot with Suspilna, public broadcaster. This was Ukraine World Podcast, our podcast explaining Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolk. I'm chief editor at ukraineworld.org. You can follow us on social networks, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And you can listen to our podcast on SoundCloud, Apple, and uh, Google. And stay with us. Stay with us.